0: It's Toronto's Podcast on the Canada's Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. I'm Celine Williams, an international speaker and business strategist, and I'd like to welcome you to Toronto's Podcast. We are part of the Canada's Podcast Network, your source for great insights for entrepreneurs from across Canada. I'm really excited today to be interviewing Scott Sturrett. Scott is the founder and CEO of Venture for Canada, a national charity that develops entrepreneurial leadership skills in young Canadians. In 2019, over 350 young Canadians from coast to coast accelerated their careers through Venture for Canada's programs. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Uh, thanks so much for having me, Celine. Looking forward to talking with you.
0: Yeah, this is so. This is really exciting because I think what Venture for Canada is doing is is super cool and really important. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what Venture for Canada is up to, and also how you came. To found Venture for Canada, and, and what drew you to this work?
1: Sounds great. Uh, so I'll first start with uh, an overview of what uh, brought me to start Venture for Canada, and then the second part, which is an overview of, of what Venture for Canada is currently working on. So, with regards to the first question, how did Venture for Canada first get started? So, when I uh, I grew up in Nova Scotia, and then I went to university at Georgian. Uh, university in the United States. And while I was a student at Georgetown, I saw a program called Venture for America, which was uh, founded by an individual named uh, Andrew Yang, who actually coincidentally ended up running for president and has now become uh, much more well known than he was uh, seven or eight years ago when he was first starting Venture for America. (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself, this is just a great idea. And in essence, Venture for America's program in a nutshell is that they recruit, train, and support uh, uh, recent university graduates to go work at startup companies across the United States, in essence, offering a kind of entrepreneurial uh, apprenticeship. And I thought to myself, you know, I would love to do something like this uh, because when I was a, a student at, at Georgetown, I kind of had an evolution over time where I began to realize a sort of a sense of career Discovery of what I really wanted to do uh, with with my life, and I think when I first started um, at Georgetown, uh, like when I was eighteen or nineteen, uh, a lot of you know what I thought in my head about what I wanted to do as a career was oh be a lawyer or go work in a big bank. But then when I was at Georgetown, I found that the things that I enjoyed the most doing were actually very entrepreneurial endeavors where I was creating something from nothing. So. I was involved in creating a student organization where we ran students for public office in the District of Columbia, and we actually got seven students elected to these local neighborhood commissions, and the initiative was called DC Students Speak, and I did a lot of other initiatives through big clubs, like big student organizations, but when I reflect back on my time at Georgetown, what I enjoyed the most was arguably doing DC Students Speak, I also did five or six different internships when I was a student uh, at a variety, at everything from everywhere from Goldman Sachs uh, to startup not-for-profit organizations. And one of the things I also, you know, I think realized through that journey was that in doing this diversity of different, internships, that really what I wanted to do uh, was uh, was, was be a part of building something uh, or to build something, you know, uh, myself. Um, So all this is to say is I was very attracted to to applying to Venture for America, but I couldn't uh, because I'm not a U.S. uh, citizen. So I ended up after graduation working at Goldman Sachs uh, for around a year in New York. And while I was there, I had this idea of, you know, why not create a venture for Canada? Uh, It's something I would love to have participated in if I was a student uh, or recent graduate. And over the course of that year, I validated the idea incorporated, did a lot of the initial startup work. And then uh, in uh, April, May 2014, I made the plunge to start working on it uh, full time. So I've been doing this for close to around six years. Uh, and in essence, I was motivated to create something to address a, a need that I saw firsthand uh, as a student uh, and, and recent uh, graduate. Uh, with regards to the second part of your question, which is about uh, what's Venture for Canada up to uh, right now? So obviously, we're you know, in week one of uh, self, everybody kind of self-social uh, distancing uh, during this coronavirus situation. So in the, the short term, we are responding uh, and being nimble with regards to the evolving coronavirus uh, epidemic. But I would say longer term, uh, one of the things we're really looking at is continuing to further grow our fellowship program. Uh, and our fellowship program supports recent grads to go work at startups uh, for 15 months upon graduation. Uh, and we currently operate in BC, Ontario, and the Atlantic provinces. And I think one of the things we'll be looking at doing for the fellowship program is growing that uh, across Canada, and in, in particular, uh, launching uh, French language programming. Uh, I would say uh, second major priority is continuing to grow our internship program. So two years ago, we launched the VFC internship program, where we recruit train, and support current students to go intern at startups in the kind of entrepreneurial co-op, uh, and that currently I think operates in Ontario and Atlantic, or sorry, uh, in Washington, Canada and Atlantic, Canada. And one of the things we be looking at doing is potentially growing that internship program over time. Uh, and then I would say a third priority is looking at how do we uh, better support our alumni from our fellowship program who are increasingly rising in seniority in their own careers. And there are some initiatives we're beginning to do, like hosting our inaugural alumni summit. Overall, I think it's an exciting time some pause on some plans because of the current uh, pandemic situation, but longer term, I think that there's a lot of exciting things that we're we're, uh, excited to to work on.
0: No, that's great. I love, there's, I have so many things I want to talk to you about now. Um, But I, I do want to acknowledge, I love that you created something that, and it's so, it happens so often with founders, right? Where you see a need based on your own life or your own experience and you go out and create this thing that then solves this problem for a ton of people. So I, I love that aspect of this, but I think it's also really cool that how VFC has evolved and changed over the years. You know, I've, I've known you for a number of years now and I've seen how it's grown and how many more people are running, you know, how many more students are, are are running through students, young Canadians, sorry, are running through the program now and how, it has expanded from recent grads to now internships, and you're talking about supporting people after they've graduated through the program. And I, and I love that as you're doing this, you're responding and growing in a way that's super effective for the same population of people, if you like.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's interesting. I was, uh, Venture for Canada leverages LinkedIn Learning as like a, a learning management software for our fellows, but also we use it like as staff. And we also use it for the interns. And I was recently doing a not-for-profit like LinkedIn learning module. And one of the things it talks about is like, just the importance of not-for-profits being responsive to different evolving needs and changes and, and not just doing the same thing every single year. And I think that that's what we've seen with Venture for Canada is that we've evolved significantly as an organization in the last uh, six years um, in response to you know, changing environment. And I think that we're going to see continued evolution. I think it's just as important for not-for-profits to evolve as it is for for-profit startups or, or corporations.
0: Great, I totally agree with that. And yet, the not-for-profits historically, not venture for Canada, I appreciate that, but not-for-profits historically have not been great at evolving. And not all of them. It's a broad. I recognize it's a generalization, but you know, I worked in a not-for-profit for a while and. They can get a bit bogged down in the bureaucracy of being a not-for-profit and getting stuck in, well, we need to do this thing to get our funding. And so they don't change and evolve. And I, th- I think it's really great that Venture for Canada, while teaching entrepreneurial leadership skills, has also kept a very entrepreneurial mindset, if you like, as an organization to be responsive and nimble and thinking about the, you know, the next problem they can solve.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, super important uh, to 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 do that, and, and definitely a lot of not-for-profits can get very bogged down in in, in the administration to the detriment of actually achieving their mission.
0: Hundred um, percent. I want to ask you a little bit about your journey because coming from places like Goldman Sachs and some of these more traditional larger organizations, what did you see that was great for you to use in Venture for Canada and being more entrepreneurial? And what did you see was, excuse me, a challenge for you or something that you had to overcome?
1: Yeah. So I'd say uh, with regards to the transition from Goldman Sachs to doing Venture for Canada, in terms of what I learned at Goldman Sachs, and to be fair, I wasn't there for a super long time, just around a year. uh, But I think I learned a few things. Uh, the, The first main thing I think I learned which I think to some extent I I already had before, but I learned in different ways, was just discipline. You know, it was my first year uh, living really by myself and as an independent adult. And, you know, at at Goldman Sachs, I had a pretty strict schedule of, you know, be in the office basically by 8 a.m. roughly, and then leave by 6.30 or 7 p.m. every day, uh, Monday through Friday. And then we didn't work on the weekends. Uh, But during the day, you know, that's a pretty relatively long kind of work day. And I remember when I was at Goldman Sachs, I implemented like just pretty like strict uh, habits. So like I would wake up at six, I would work out in the morning, you know, I'd be home by, you know, 8 p.m. from work. And then I would, you know, do some work in Venture for Canada for like an hour, an hour and a half, and then like go to sleep by 10. And then I'd work in Venture for Canada on the weekends, and I would sleep eight hours a night. You know, so one of the things I think that I realized was uh, when I was at Georgetown, I just had very strict habits around exercise, around eating well, around sleeping well, around using my time uh, efficiently because I uh, had a lot of constraints on my time. And I think that that was really helpful because all of a sudden, you know, I was when I first started doing venture for full time. Uh, I was 22, about to turn 23, uh, which at the time I realized just how young I was and how little I knew. But I think that. Leaving that really structured environment at Goldman Sachs and to doing venture for Canada, where literally I had complete control over my own time. I was the only person, right, uh, doing this. Uh, I was just working out of an apartment, and I think I ended up having the discipline to know what I should be focusing on and what I shouldn't be focusing on, uh, and to work really, really hard at achieving the the most important uh, things. Which is, by the way, I, I still think an important, really important thing even in my, uh, in, my, in my current role. So um, I'd say that was the, the habits were the one thing I really learned at, at, at Goldman Sachs. I would say a second thing I probably learned at Goldman Sachs was just a, a better understanding of large organizations and how they work. You know, sometimes even when I do venture for and I'm interacting with people in much larger organizations, it, it's easy to get frustrated. Be, oh, why is this moving so slow? Why is this happening? And then you begin to realize that very rarely it's, it's the person that's the issue. Although sometimes that is the case, but a lot of the times it's constraints that they're under within the system that they operate under. And it's important. I think some of the facts that I, I developed a little bit more empathy for the complexity that exists within large organizations. And uh, you know, it's important to put yourself in, in other people's sh- shoes, uh, especially when you're in a small organization and, and working with people in large organizations. And I'd say on a third level is because my job at Goldman Sachs is my first full-time job out of university, is I learned certain just basic workplace etiquette elements that I think were, were helpful. You know, if I had just done Venture for Canada right out of Georgetown, I think it would have been challenging for me. Uh, and having that year of just kind of learning, you know, everything from, you know, calendar by etiquette to like a variety of just basic workplace things that, that I think were, were, were helpful. With regards to sort of the second part of your your question, which is in terms of what, what did I not learn? I think as much as, it's funny, like the founder of Venture for America, Andrew Yang, he wrote a book and in it, he he talks about um, transitioning from like being a, a corporate lawyer uh, to being a entrepreneur. And he talks talks about it like the the need to like unlearn certain bad habits. And I do think, you know, sometimes... When you're an entrepreneur, a lot of times, you know, there'll be advice, oh, go work in a big consulting firm or go work in a you know big bank and then go f- create a startup. And and while I do think in the case of me, I, I actually think it was perfect. I spent around a year there. I learned certain basic things that I think were applicable for many different career paths. Um, but I don't think I necessarily learned any bad habits. I, I I definitely think that people sometimes if you are in an environment that is very non-entrepreneurial. Then one of the things that kind of happen is that you can uh, you can decrease your entrepreneurial skills based on the environment that that you're in. I don't think that that was the case of uh, with myself and Goldman Sachs, but I do think it's something for people to because I think a lot of recent grads who are entrepreneurial make a mistake where they say, oh, I'm going to go work at a big consulting firm for like three years and then go create you know, my own company, which by the way, sometimes works. But if you're in that situation for, if you're in a really large organization that perhaps isn't very entrepreneurial for like five, 10, 15 years, it can really build bad habits um, uh, in terms of, it's particularly if your goal is to one day become uh, become a, a, an entrepreneur. So yeah, that that's a longer answer to your, your question, but yeah, happy to, you know, further give background on, on any of those items.
0: Well, it's, I do not apologize for a longer answer. I, I love that. And and as someone who, you know, I ran a business, then went and worked in corporate for 11 years right out of university. Uh, it was an unintentional 11-year journey. I can tell you that that what you're saying about creating those bad habits in sort of a bigger corporate environment is true it's not easy to unlearn some of those things and it takes time. And And so I appreciate what you're saying. I, I feel like that sort of year or two is not a bad thing to learn some of what you were talking about, like the corporate etiquette. That's a real thing that, you know, if you are in any organization, you're going to deal with people in any organizations. If you're starting a startup, at some point you're going to be dealing with other organizations in some way, having some of that etiquette, will actually serve you in the long run. And being too bogged down in the mindset of the corporate can also create some bad habits that, you know, take ages to get rid of. And I I love that you had enough time to create some really strong, solid habits, and you were disciplined enough in your early 20s, I would not have been to have done that and do and as effectively as you did it. And then rolled it into your role at Venture for Canada, because my guess is that that understanding really serves the, the, the people who are going through Venture for Canada, because you have that lens that can help them.
1: Absolutely. I, and I think it's, you know, having that lived experience of, of <laughs> going through the process, I, I think does help me a lot in, in, my, uh, in, in my current role. So uh, yeah, I completely agree with that.
0: So I'm going to, I want to ask you about some of the trends that you've seen, because you have a really unique view and interaction with people who are stepping into or interested in being an entrepreneur, whether they're creating their own startup at some point, or they just have more entrepreneurial leanings and want to work for an entrepreneurial organization, because as we both know, that that is a growing portion of the companies that are out there. So I want to ask you, you know, what you're seeing as trends in terms of the people coming through I I'm going to actually break this down into a question at a time this time. So, what trends are you seeing in terms of the kids that are the students, the young Canadians that are coming through Venture for Canada, of what they're interested in or what they want to learn more of right now.
1: That that's a great question. I'd say at a very broad level, I think that now more than even five years ago, there is a desire uh, by young Canadians uh, to do a few different things. So I think one is uh, the ability to make like a meaningful impact in the work that they do. Uh, I think that this, this existed, I mean, I graduated from university seven years ago, so not that long ago, but I would say that that seven years ago, that was absolutely like a trend, uh, that, that existed. And I'd say, you know, in 2020, that is something that exists even more is that people want meaningful, like a meaningful work at a a high level or to create meaningful impact. I would actually say sometimes that could be to people's detriment because they sometimes overlook the desire to make a meaningful impact over the desire to create meaningful skills, (laughs) which I would argue that sometimes, uh, Having, uh, well, I would, in most cases, having meaningful skills is how you create meaningful impact. But uh, that's a separate point. You know, I'd say this second point in terms of what a lot of recent grads are looking for is I think that they're looking for a sense of community. I think in this technological world, we are more interconnected than we ever have been, but in some ways we can be more apart. And I actually think of all this social distancing in the last week has one thing that it has made clear is we're very social animals. And I think a lot of recent grads when they're graduating from school are looking for a sense of community in the workplace that they, they work in. Uh, so they're not just looking for colleagues, but they're looking for people who they can like socialize with more in general. Uh, and I think that's always existed, but I think that that is a, the blurring between friends and colleagues, I think is something that has accelerated. Which also actually brings with it problems, but I do think it's something people are, are especially recent grads, are are, are looking for. Uh, with regards to kind of skills in general, I, I mean, it all depends on the person. Right? Some people, if someone's interested in sales, they're looking to develop sales skills. If they're a developer, looking to develop different skills. So, you know, I think at the end of the day, people are still looking to develop skills within their workplaces, but it really depends on on what their kind of career aspirations uh, are. Yeah, I think that I think that that. Those would be the three points that I, I'd give uh, for now.
0: So I want to talk about skills for a second because, and not in a technical sense, but uh, because Venture for Canada is very focused on leadership skills specifically, are you seeing any specific leadership skills that help people succeed or gaps that when, when the, these recent grads are coming in that they just they don't seem to have a sense of certain skills?
1: Absolutely. If someone wants to lead and motivate other people, one of the most important things that they need is the ability to manage themselves uh, and to motivate themselves and uh, to, in essence, like lead themselves. Right? And I think a challenge with many recent grads, but also many people in general, is you know, there's such a desire to want to be a leader right? or to lead or to manage people. But I think before one does that, one really does need to make sure that they have their own house in order. So I think that if there was one cautionary advice I would give a lot of recent grads is it's first focus on somewhat selfishly on yourself, right? And make sure you have good habits. Make sure you have good mental health. uh, Make sure you are well positioned for success. And I think once you've done that, you can then move on to you know, trying to lead and motivate uh, others.
0: I mean, I have, I'm very biased in this, so I would agree. I do a lot of work in emotional intelligence. So I I would totally agree. I think that is a foundational starting point is really getting your own house in order and starting there. Because we always think it's about the other person, but you can't motivate, manage, help another person if you are not motivating and managing yourself to start with.
1: Uh, Yeah, 100%. (laughs) I completely
0: agree. Has there been any advice that you were given that was really meaningful to you that, you know, to get you to where you are right now in your career that you would want to share with people?
1: Yeah, I'd say one one piece of advice. It's funny, when I was leaving Goldman Sachs, I had coffee with my, uh, the managing director of the team that I was on. Uh, And she was, uh, you know, a, a very high performing person, or she is a very high performing person. She's now a senior executive at Bank of America. And one of the things she said to me, which, um, you know, she, she made a comment. She's like, don't try to always rush things, right? And t- take time. And that sometimes when you're young, you don't appreciate, and, uh, you know, how life can be longer and, and that th- things take time. Uh, I think at the, t- at the time, I didn't take, I wasn't hostile to the advice. I think I just was like, okay, yeah, sure. Here's this older person, give me this advice. <laughs> and and probably a year or two later, I was like, that was actually really good advice. Because, you know, maybe I should have stayed at Goldman Sachs another year, for instance, right? And Venture Canada, I mean, I think Venture Canada has been really successful, so I'm not complaining about how it worked. But I think so many recent grads, I, like I, I, the challenge we see sometimes with with recent grads in uh, Venture for Canada, is just a desire to, sometimes like uh, uh, this grass is, is always greener or FOMO mentality. Which is just you know job hopping from job to job to job, and it it by the way strategic job movements absolutely make sense, but I think there's a lot of people they're in a job for two months and they're just like I don't like this I want to move to another job and then they're in another job and they don't like it and they move to another job and then to some extent they just never end up being happy and they never end up really creating any kind of meaningful impact because they're just jumping from thing to thing to thing, so. Relatedly, this is not advice uh, Bill Gates gave me, but uh, this is advice that Bill Gates, as reported to have said, which I think is really valuable, is that people overestimate what they can do in three years and they underestimate what they can do in ten years. All this is to say is that, you know, sometimes I think when somebody's working towards a goal, is it's think about every day is just like one like brick in the uh, the pyramid of what you're trying to build. And it takes a long time to build something that is meaningful. In the case of Venture for Canada, I, I actually incorporated the organization on like July 18th, 2013, so approaching seven years ago. And it's taken seven years to build a BFC into today, which is what I would say is like a you know mid-sized not-for-profit. Uh, but uh, you know, it, 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 it you know we didn't do that in two years. And I and I think when I first started doing Venture for Canada, I probably think. I, at the time, I would have thought, "Oh, in three or four years we'll be the size." And it you know it ended up taking us seven years. All this is to say is I think youth brings with it a kind of a sense of impatience, which is one of the the great things about being young, I think, is and and why a lot of young people accomplish a lot of things is that sense of impatience. But I think it's it's important to marry that impatience with a realism that building anything takes a lot of time takes a lot of commitment and it takes a lot of focus. My former boss's advice, uh, which is in essence, slow down and take your time. Uh, and it, it is advice that I would continue to give recent grads.
0: Super interesting that you say that, because I think that if if we were to look at previous generations, right? So, you know, I think about my father's generation or my mother's generation, they did not have the same focus on speed necessarily. They weren't as, there was, and it might've been war times, whatever it was, but they had, they were less focused on rushing things, which is why I think we had people that in those generations stayed at organizations for their entire career, right? Like it was, you did a thing, you kept doing it, you got better at it, you moved to the next level of leadership, whatever the case may be. So it's really interesting because I, as you're saying that, I think you're right on the money that young people now are much more focused on the speed of things. And I wonder how much of that is driven by technology and that idea of FOMO that you mentioned um, and what organizations or companies who want to have interns or who want to bring these people in, what can they do to help keep those people there, help meet that demand or teach them to slow down and be more strategic. If, if there's opportunities there, as well. I think
1: one is having proactive career conversations with people like really early on to set those expectations from the beginning. Uh, I think that that's super important to do. And by the way, just as at one kind of point related to kind of a hypothesis, I think of the generational shift is I think when you look at a lot of people like, let's say in the post-war period, right? And I think of my my grandparents, um, my, my maternal grandparents are both still alive and they were born in 1931. And uh, they had five kids. And, you know, when my grandfather graduated from university um, shortly, you know, after they, they, they started having kids, uh, you know, they all of a sudden had five kids to support. And it was less about following your passion. It was more about, OK, how probably can we get, you know, food on the table? Right. I think, you know, in the case of my, my grandparents, they were born in the Great Depression uh, in a very rural community in Nova Scotia. Where you know there was, they grew up in houses that didn't have electricity or running water. I think you know for them it was more about survival. I think for most people today in Canada, it's been more about, you know, it's kind of like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? When you have food on your table in most cases, or you, you know, have that sense of social stability and there's that social safety net and a variety of different things people start to focus more on self-actualization and, you know, that, that sense for meaning in their, in their life. Mm-hmm. And I think before there was more of a focus on, ju- I mean, rightfully so, there was more of a need to focus on survival. What will be interesting potentially seeing the economic consequences of this coronavirus uh, crisis is the the impact that it has on people, right? Because I think that in Canada, we're used to living in very stable situation and, where you know we're not in a in a crisis like this it would be interesting for like the i guess the the people born in 1998 who are just graduating from university like now to see the you know if if there is a little bit of a shift to say okay well maybe it's about getting a job that you know provides me stability it's about meeting my basic needs and it's less solely just about finding you know work that that aligns with you know their values 100% um, and who knows? I, 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 it'd be interesting. If, I mean, a lot of it depends on the severity of the economic crisis, but I, I, yeah, I wonder if, 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 uh, if, if the current situation could could impact people's young people's perceptions or goals a little bit.
0: It'll be, it'll definitely be interesting to see because I, I think it has your, what you've said is really right on the money from my perspective is that we've swung from, a time when it was just about stability and meeting someone's basic needs and allowing them to live and support their family to this time now where it's, that is really not in the language of younger people. It really is. The idea of follow your passion is so ingrained in our culture and our languaging and our, our, you know, looking for jobs and figuring out work. And it's almost like the the that pendulum swing to the other extreme will end up, might, I'm not saying it will, I'm not predicting the future, but it might end up a little bit more balanced. And what does that middle ground look like at the end of this? I think that will be really interesting.
1: And I'd say my caveat is that I mean, in any generation, there's certain so there's certain people I know in my age or younger who are very focused on just meeting their basic needs, right? And there are people who have economic circumstances or just different life goals, right? So I would absolutely say there even you know there's some people who are more just focused on that, but I do wonder if that that there is that sort of shift in, in equilibrium. Um, so anyway, the t- only time will tell. But history uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Yes, that's great.
0: I love that. That's great. Um, We're getting close to the end of our time together, but I do want to ask this question, which is, is there anything that you're, I'm a book nerd. So preface this with always, I always ask about books. Is there anything that you've read or you are reading that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: Yeah. uh, So what I'm reading right now, and I have been working through for like the last like five weeks is a, Simone de Beauvoir's The Mandarins, uh, which is a widely thought from what I've read to be her best novel, uh, which is an interesting exploration of French intellectuals in kind of post-war Paris, uh, post-World War II. And uh, it's supposed to be loosely based on Simone de Beauvoir's uh, life. And it is an interesting book because it, you know, I think focuses a lot on, on how people deal with loss. How do people deal as a society after like a traumatic event, like World War II. Mm. Both as a society, but also as people. So it's kind of interesting within the context of our current coronavirus uh, situation. But I think it, you know, it's also about, I think, relationships, right? And it's about gender uh, and sexuality. And uh, while the book is, a, it, it is a lengthy, a very lengthy novel that at times gets a little uh, tedious. I have enjoyed forcing myself to read it in, in many ways because, while not always the most in- enjoyable at the time of while reading it, uh, and I'm around like 685 pages of 730, so I'm almost, almost on the book. But uh, I have really enjoyed it, um, and I, I recommend people read fiction. Yeah. So anyway, Simone de Beauvoir's *The Mandarins*. Uh, I, uh, you know, when I'm asked this question, I often revert to what I've like m- most recently read, and I, I really did enjoy that. In terms of nonfiction, what I read this year, so the last five weeks has been reading that that one book because it's taken me forever. But um, I read recent. I read in I think January uh, uh, Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill about Harvey Weinstein uh, and his investigative reporting, and that was a great nonfiction. Uh, And to me, really makes uh, it clear like the importance of investigative uh, journalism, and and also just the extent to which. It wasn't just Harvey Weinstein, but it was a whole system propping up Harvey Weinstein that you begin to see. So, anyway, th- those are two books that that are, I could I I enjoy reading uh, a lot. And to be honest, I am really looking forward to reading more books in the next little bit because normally it doesn't take me five weeks to read one book, but uh, the length of this book and just it requires a lot of thought to read. Frankly, almost each page that I uh, usually I'll, I'll go through, you know, I switch books every two weeks, roughly. Uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, reading some more easily digestible. But, but one thing is I'd say is that I actually think sometimes it's really good to like force yourself to read books that maybe at the time are a little, you know, not the most enjoyable. But then those are sometimes the books that you reflect on the most, you know, years and years later. And I'm really giving them the time that they deserve, I think, is super uh, important because there's often so much packed uh, packed within one of those books. My absolute favorite author is Robert Caro, who is a uh, biographer. He's won uh, two, well, at least one Pulitzer Prize, if not two. Uh, and he has a great four-part series on Lyndon Johnson that is a fantastic read. He has like, tw- it's I think, close to 3,000 pages worth of content, uh, but is, you know, I think It's much more about Lyndon Johnson. The books are really about power. They're about government. They're about, uh, (laughs) you know, the human drive. They're about ambition. He actually still has not, he has a fifth book that is, he's in his 80s. So hopefully his health remains well, but he has one more book that he needs to publish in the Lyndon Johnson series. (laughs) Oh, wow. It's absolutely great. He also has a 1500 page like book on uh, Robert Moses. Who was uh, kind of the signature urban planner of New York City, and really arguably the most influential person in New York City for like forty or fifty years? He won the Pulitzer Prize for, for that book, and it's called *The Power Broker*. Uh, but I would say of any book I've read, *The Power Broker* has probably had the biggest impact on me, and is you know arguably my favorite book of of all of all time. And it is a obviously a nonfiction too. So um, anyway, I I could go on, but but I, I figured I would mention two of my m- most favorite recent books, and then. What are my? Uh, what's my favorite author and what's my favorite book of all time?
0: I love it. And for the record, as someone who, you know, studied English lit in university and forced myself through many books I did not want to read as a result of that, I actually really agree with you. Sometimes choosing a book that you might not necessarily, might not be your quote unquote style or you might not, might be more difficult to read and actually just getting through it Sometimes those books are the most influential in terms of what you reflect on or you think about afterwards or or what it all, how it all comes together. So I very much appreciate you saying that because I, I would totally agree.
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: I want to thank Scott. Thank you very much for coming on. And I want to let everyone know that they can check you out. And these links will be at in the show notes for this as well. But they can check out Venture for Canada online at ventureforcanada.ca and if you want to learn more about Scott personally, you can check him out online at Sturrett, and that's S-T-I-R-R-E-T-T dot com. Scott, thank you. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thanks, it was great speaking with you as well as me.
0: Thanks everyone for taking the time today to listen to Toronto's podcast on the Canada Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the podcast today, please make sure to write us a review on iTunes and share this episode with a friend. You can also check us out online at canadaspodcast.com where you can listen, discover and engage and learn more about what other entrepreneurs are doing across the country. See you next time.